Today we've got a long scripture reading from the book of Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, what I'm going to do with it is I'll read and then comment and then read and comment. Uh, So it's not necessarily the the typical sermon uh, outline that we usually follow. One of my professors in seminary, a guy by the name of Mike Ross. Mike Ross was uh, formerly the, he was the moderator of our general assembly of our denomination this past year. Really good preacher, insightful guy. He said this, he said, neglect, that word neglect is one of the most awful words in the English language. Negligence from which comes from neglect, it comes to us with, with very serious consequences and implications attached. For instance, if a, if a doctor is guilty of negligence, he may lose his license and we may lose our lives. If a police officer is negligent in his duty, then innocent people are punished and guilty people go free. If a banker or financial manager is negligent, then we may go bankrupt and lose the inheritance which we would uh, bequeath to our children. If a parent is negligent, the state may take their children away from them. It is a very serious thing, yet... Of all the different kinds of negligence in the world, none is worse, none is worse than spiritual negligence. Because if we neglect the life of God in our soul, then we end up ruined, ruined. That's what Jesus says. In that rhetorical question, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? I mean, if we're negligent with our bodies... Our bodies are going to waste away in just a few years. But if we are negligent with that part of us that is eternal, that is the most essential part of us that lasts forever, that's the frightening prospect facing the recipients of this, of this letter. We talked about it briefly last week. The recipients of the letter uh, to the Hebrews, we think, were, they were uh, Jews who came to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and and now they're beginning to rethink things. Maybe, is he really this? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe he's not the Messiah. Maybe we should return to Judaism. Life would be a whole lot easier living under the umbrella of the legalized religion, Judaism, which was legal religion in the Roman Empire at that time. And the siren song is just becoming louder and louder around them. Voices, increasing number of voices are, are saying, come on back. Come on back to... Come on back to the fold. Come on back to your heritage. Come on back to your family. Trying to lure them um, into believing that, sure, Jesus Christ is is a great guy, but let's not get carried away. (laughs) Let's not think of him too, too crazy highly as uh, as the Christians the Christians do. So, verse one, brothers and sisters, we must pay. The most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore or literally neglect? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us 
by those who heard him, the, the apostles. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Right at the very beginning of the letter, a very solemn warning, right? And these are sober words. And what we'll find as we continue along, he actually inserts these, these warnings at several other points in the, in the letter, at the end of chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6, and somewhere near the end or middle, I think it is, of chapter 10, uh, he, he, he put these very solemn warnings. One of the things to notice about these warnings is that each of them is an argument from the lesser to the greater, a fortiori. If this is true, then how much more is this to be true? Or if, if every time in the Old Testament, God's, when God's people neglected his Torah, uh, the, the result was disastrous, how much more disastrous will it be if we neglect the gospel? The Jewish tradition held that the Torah was given to Moses on Mount Sinai by medium of the angels. If we neglect, or, or sorry, if they neglected the angelic Torah and, and they were destroyed as a result of that, then how much more dangerous is it for us if we turn our backs on the one who is so much greater than the angels, which is the argument he's been making all through chapter 1 and here at the beginning of chapter 2. And what insanity it is for us to even consider that as a possibility. So John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, and Michiko, you played that before the service this morning. John Newton tells a story about a man who, this man was about to inherit a fabulous estate. Uh, Imagine a, a British estate, BBC, Jane Austen, period piece. The British estate, acres and acres of woodlands, Rolling green fields, stables, horses. This man is being driven in his carriage to his estate to come into his inheritance. But uh, about a mile before he reaches the destination, before he gets there, his carriage breaks down. And he has to walk the final mile on foot. It's very muddy. The road is, is extremely it just rained, and the, the road is just a bog, you know, three feet, or th- not three feet, three inches of, of mud he's traipsing through. And all, the, all, along, all along the way, he is muttering to himself, my carriage is broken. My carriage is broken down. My, my joints are aching. Oh, the unfairness. <laughs> oh, the unfairness of having to walk through and he's on the, the, the verge of inheriting this wonderful estate, which the author of Hebrews is co- going to call this wonderful estate in the very next verse, the world to come. He's on the verge of inheriting the world to come, and he's going to turn back now? That, that, that's insanity. Are you going to turn your back on Jesus now? You know, if Jesus is simply a prophet, if he's just one of the prophets, if he's... If he's a lot like Jeremiah or Isaiah or whomever who who comes and says, here's how you get to God, that's one thing. But if he is God himself, if he's not another prophet sent by God, but if he is the God from whom all the prophets come and the angels come and the Torah comes and the gospel comes to turn your back on him is is, is to leave so great a salvation. 
to distance yourself from his church, to distance yourself, that, that's precisely what they were being tempted. Um, you know, leave, leave Christianity, stop worshiping on Sundays, come on back to Judaism. That's precisely what they were being asked to do. And the author of Hebrews says, that's worse than what the people of the Old Testament did. It's far worse. If we neglect God's salvation, how then shall we escape? Okay, the argument continues in verse 5. In verse 5, we're going to end up quoting Psalm 8. And he's going to do some interesting stuff with Psalm 8. Psalm 8 would have been a psalm that every Jewish boy and girl memorized growing up. Um, and he's going he's to show something interesting here. Beginning in verse 5, where he says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. There it is, the world to come, the new world after the resurrection, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? Psalm 8 is the psalm where the psalmist says, uh, when I look at the moon and stars above, what is man that you are mindful of? When, I, when I'm out camping away from the lights of the city of Boise and I see the Milky Way, I, I, I witness the grandness of the heavens above. I, how do you feel when that happens? You feel so infinitesimally small. And you think to yourself, uh, why, why does God, why is he mindful of me? Uh, a son of man like me, which is a Hebrew way of just saying a human being, why, that you care for, for me, I, I'm so tiny, why would you even, I mean, haven't you felt that before when you're out camping? Like, why in the world would God take notice of me? And yet, then the psalm says, God does far more than merely take notice of us. He actually gives to us a lofty, such a lofty position, we're right up there with the angels, we are the kings and queens of the created world down here. He, he says, verse 7, you made him a little lower than the angels, yet you crowned him with glory and honor, and you put everything underneath his feet. Let me ask you this question. When you look at another human being, what do you see? Shulton alluded to it earlier in the service. What do you see? Do you see, do you see a cathedral? Do you see somebody who is even more miraculously beautiful than the great cathedrals of the Middle Ages? Do you see someone who is supernaturally beautiful? And for the same reason, because just like Notre Dame or St. Peter's or the great great cathedrals of Europe, Europe, do you see someone who has been designed to... to, uh, to house the holy God inside of you. That's what the, that's why we had cathedrals was to, to have the presence of God there and have a building that was fitting for the presence of God to be there. And, and that's what's supposed to happen in your body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you see? So, so the pinnacle of God's creation is, is not the magnificent Milky Way above. It's not up there. It's down here. When we see, you are the pinnacle of God's creation. And if the stars could speak, and maybe they do, if the stars could speak to one another, they would be saying, have you looked at those seven billion human beings down there on earth? They are amazing. They are, 
so creative and intelligent, all bearing the image of God. Verse 8 continues. Um, You put everything under his feet. And in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Look at look here. Look at your, this is what comes next is probably the greatest understatement in all of the Bible. It's the end of verse. Look at this sentence. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. Do we see? Do we see a a, a perfectly? Is nature our servant? Are we the benevolent kings and queens who are ruling over nature and nature is our friend and we are our nature's friend? No, I mean, nature is our enemy now. Nature, which once was our servant and friend, and we who once were her kind masters are now at odds. Nature attacks us. We, the kings and queens of the world, can die at the hands of a tiny mosquito. A little bug carrying a a virus inside of it with a mouth the size less than a pinprick can bite the kings and queens of the universe and we're dead. We don't stand a chance to, to subject the weather to us. We don't have a tornado is gonna, we can't stand against a tornado. We can't stand against a tomato that, that has E. coli. We can't get our dogs and cats to be subject to us, let alone the rest of the universe. No, the world is, the world is no longer cooperating with us. We do not see everything subject to mankind. So what is the, what's the point that, the, that the, uh, the author of Hebrews is trying to make? He's saying, you, you memorized the psalm as a kid. And kind of like we would memorize Psalm 23. You just, you just know it. You just recite it. It just comes right off the tip of your tongue. But did you realize that Psalm 8 is not being fulfilled in this world today? Have you ever been tripped up by that? The psalm that you love, that you were nursed, nursed at on your, on your mother's uh, knee, it is not being fulfilled. There's, there's only one way for Psalm 8 to be fulfilled in the world today. And what is that way? That way is Jesus. Because <laughs> we don't see... We, but we, verse 9, but we, we don't see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, and is now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So by the grace of God, he might taste, he might taste death for everyone. I watched one of the most incredible lectures, probably was the best lecture I have, have seen um, Best thing I've watched in a couple of years. And it was Peter Kreeft, who we used a Peter Kreeft quote in the liturgy last week. A philosopher, philosophy professor at Boston College University, written 75 books. He's a, he's a, he's a dweeby-looking guy. <laughs> he looks like a professor. No offense. <laughs> and, and he's not a captivating speaker at all. But he can't, the Saddleback Community Church, I think Rick Warren's megachurch in South, uh, uh, Southern California, invited him in 2010 to come in and deliver this, a series of lectures. And, and he gives a lecture entitled, it's entitled The Shocking Life of Jesus. The Shocking Life of Jesus. You go on the web later on today. And, and for me, it was, it was absolutely amazing. 
he, and I said, he's not a very powerful speaker, but every word that he speaks is just deeply profound, and I'm probably not going to do justice to it. It's, it's, when you try to recount the profound, it just doesn't come out nearly as profound. But at one point, he's speaking about how boredom, boredom is a major psychological problem for people today. It's boredom that gets us in all kinds of trouble, and we're so easily bored. And he's, he says, I suspect that boredom is one of the primary causes of war and violence in the world today. Because nobody, when you're, when you're killing somebody else, nobody's bored by that. When you're planning to kill somebody else, nobody's bored by that. Another great boredom reliever, he said, in our world today is promiscuous sex. When you're, when you're engaging in promiscuous sex, that's, nobody's bored by that. Our culture, like the culture of the late Roman Empire, is saturated with sex And violence, partly because our culture, like theirs, is so saturated with boredom. But he goes on, friends, if you know Jesus Christ, are you bored? If you you know Jesus, you, you shouldn't. Or a better way to put it, the deeper you know Jesus, the less you are bored. Would you agree? The deeper you know Jesus Christ, the less you are you are bored. Uh, But let me be very honest, he goes on. Where do we find boredom in our culture? Go to your nearest Sunday morning church service, be it Protestant or Catholic. Then go to your nearest athletic field, be it amateur or professional, and compare the two. Compare the passion. Compare the energy, the interest, the investment of the heart in those two places. How much of your, of your own self rubs off in those two places? Let me be very honest. I am a big fan of God, but most of the time I'm, even, I'm an even bigger Red Sox fan. I make more literal noise about beating the damn Yankees than about beating the devil. And at this point in the lecture, everybody's laughing. They find that, that quite funny, but he's, he's being dead serious. And, and, and he says, I am an idiot. That's one of the meanings of original sin, is that you and I are so terribly nuts because we do see Jesus. We do see Jesus. And yet, and yet we are so bland and passionless and insipid. This letter to the Hebrews, we think it was written sometime uh, late 60s, so maybe 66, 67 A.D., and we know that Jesus Christ died around 33 AD. So Jesus has been dead about 30 years when the author of Hebrews writes this. And he says, when he says we do see Jesus, is he saying that did Jesus come to him in a dream and speak to him in a dream? You know, hi, let me talk to you. Does he saying that he, he saw this wonderful piece of Christian art, a fresco on the streets of Rome that de- depicted Jesus? How does he see Jesus? Doesn't, doesn't he see Jesus the same way You and I see Jesus by faith. Through the eyes of faith, we see the one man in the history of the world that never bored anybody, whose every word was so shocking, whose very life was so shocking. That's quite an achievement. Then how can we be so dispassionate? When the alarm clock went off this morning, what was the first thought that went through your mind? The alarm rings. What's the first... Isn't it all the stuff you got to do today? All the things that I got, all the things I have to do today. Why isn't the very first thought, thank you, Jesus, you are here. I, 
I see you. I get to see you. We do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10. We're moving on. The next verse, I love how this verse starts. There's a lot of different ways we can summarize the effects of the gospel. You say, effect, one of the effects of the gospel is we get our sins forgiven. We are anointed with the Holy Spirit. We get a new nature. We get, we get a new life. Notice how he summarizes the effect of the gospel right here in, in verse 10. He says, the effect of the gospel is that Jesus brings many sons and daughters to glory. <laughs> in bringing many sons and daughters to glory... It was fitting that God, from whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he, through what he suffered. It was, it was fitting. It was fitting. This is one of the rare places, maybe the only place in the New Testament where you have an author saying, where, where an author is saying um, that He's commenting on what is proper behavior for God. It was proper. It was appropriate for this kind of God to take this kind of step. What a formidable formidable thought that is. It was fitting that God should take flesh and blood. Christ, all right, Christ does not heal us as an ordinary doctor might. He does not heal heal us like, an ordinary doctor standing beside uh, our bed, diagnosing our sickness, prescribing medicine for us to take, and then going away, leaving us to get better as we follow his instructions. How does Christ heal us? He heals us by becoming the patient. He assumes the very humanity which is in need of redemption. And being anointed by the Spirit in our humanity by a life of perfect obedience, by dying and rising again for us, our humanity is healed in him, in his person. Now, I didn't write that, unsurprisingly. T.F. Torrance, Scottish theologian, wrote that, but he was just, he's riffing off of an old statement. I think it was, was it Ignatius who said, um, that which he does not assume, he does not heal. Jesus has to assume everything about us. He has to become fully and and perfectly human. And it was appropriate for this kind of God to take this kind of step. He, He heals us because of that sweaty person, Jesus. That bloody person, Jesus. And that crying, Person, he he didn't enter into this world with nerves of steel. He was a man who who cried with loud groans and tears. The author of Hebrews will say later on that crying for person, that forgiving person, that fiery prophet, that rebuking person. This is the recurring theme in Hebrews. God is like Jesus, and all of Jesus is like God. If you want to see God, you look at Jesus. If you look at Jesus, that there you're seeing God. This. This tenderly healing, tenderly loving, uh, but also the the guy who rebukes evil, who who calls people to the carpet, who gets angry, who's a fighter, a warrior, and a self-emptying, a self-emptying lover, a self-donating friend, a self-giving suffering on our behalf. 
knowing everything that we experience and knowing it exactly because he's assumed our very nature, love crucified and glorified in Jesus Christ. It was fitting for our God to do that, for the God to do that. Verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praise. So he is quoting a psalm here. Don't raise your hand if you know (laughs) what psalm it is. This psalm is kind of a two-part psalm. The first part of the psalm is is just pure agony and grief. And the second part of the psalm is is pure joy. It's this this voice of praise. And this verse, uh, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly I will sing. It's it's right at the hinge of, of the two. So two verses before this, Two verses before I will declare your praise to my brothers and sisters, it says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Anybody starting to guess what psalm it is? This is, this is Psalm 22. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're, you're new to Christianity, this is the psalm that, that's the cry of dereliction psalm. This song begins... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The whole first half of the psalm is Jesus Christ on the cross. Then it switches. Why do you think it switches in the middle? Because of the resurrection. Because in the first half, he's dying. In the second half, he is declaring your praise, uh, declaring your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will praise you. He's plunged down into the grave, but then he comes up. It's the resurrection after the grave. And he's saying... Let me ask you this question. Does it, how does it move you emotionally to hear that Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters? How does it move, when, he, when Jesus sees me, when Jesus sees me, he says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. When Jesus sees you, he says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. When I am struggling, just struggling to pray, struggling to be patient, struggling to lead my family and my church well, he sees me and he says tenderly, this is my brother, bone of my bone, flesh, my, my own flesh and blood. And when you, you are tied up in a knot of fears and sorrows and in temptations, he says, this is my sister, my own flesh and blood. He goes to the cross and bleeds and dies. And we see him there and we say, this is my brother, my flesh and blood. When we see Christ seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty raised from the dead, we say, this is my brother, my flesh and blood. Verse 14. Since the children... Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. There was a commercial several years ago, and I, I tried to find it this week. I looked it up on, on the internet, I, I couldn't find it. But it, it, this commercial, you, maybe you remember it. Everyone in the commercial has a digital clock 
superimposed above their heads. And here's a gentleman walking down the street. His clock reads 49 years, 17 days, 6 hours, 21 minutes, 55 seconds, 54 seconds, 53 seconds, 52. Here's a cute little redhead girl whose clock reads 89 years, 11 days, 10 hours, 21 minutes, 26 seconds, 25 seconds, 24 seconds. Remember this commercial? What what does a digital clock represent? Yeah, it represents how much time until my death. If you were to survey 100 people on the street and you ask them what is their greatest fear, 95 of them, if they were being honest with you, would say death is my greatest fear. Or if they didn't say death, they would say, they would say, well, I'm afraid of getting sick. Well, yeah, if you're really afraid of getting sick, <laughs> that's, that leads to, to death, right? I'm afraid of going bankrupt. Well, why are you afraid of going bankrupt? Because if I go bankrupt, then I lose my house, and I'm homeless, then, I, then I'm living on the street, then I, then I don't have anything to eat, then I, get, then I get sick, and then I die. See, everything goes back to death. And I doubt that most of us have really, truly come to terms. We, we haven't fully realized how much our fear of death drives our lives. Probably the only guys out there who, who really have taken into account seriously uh, how the fear of death shapes our lives would be, would be your existential philosophers. It's the philosophers who, who think about it. It's Albert Camus. Remember, I've used this illustration before. Camus says, um, says you have 24 hours. No, you have 60 minutes. Or maybe he says 24 hours, I don't remember. But you have, we'll call it 24, 24 hours to do anything in this world that you wish. Eat the finest of foods, drink the, the finest of, of wines, go and enjoy yourself. You, and you have as many resources as necessary to have the time of your life for 24 hours. But at the end of that time, I'm going to shoot you. Camus says, death is like a gun to the head. The finest food, the finest music, but... But 24 hours later, I'm pulling the trigger, and that's what it's like to be human. The the grim reality of our impending death is like a loaded pistol waiting to go off. And all that we enjoy, all that makes life meaningful, the, the philosophers would say, it's greatly diminished by the fact that you only have 24 hours, and then you, you go off into this, this black extinction ever after. Unless, unless... The resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. Acts 2.24 reads, and I'm almost done. Acts 2.24 says, God raised Jesus up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for for Jesus to be held in its power. The image that I love of uh, Jesus Christ, Jesus put death to death. The death of Christ led to the death of the death of death, it's, Jesus goes into the grave and he kicks out the door. He kicks the door open from the inside in order that those who are in this, this, this castle dungeon called death are, are able to be free. Because Jesus has been raised, because we are promised to be raised with him, the author of Hebrews says that our fear of death, uh, notice how he, what he calls it. He calls it, our fear of death, he says, is like a slavery we are, in, we are in chains to, to, to our fear of death. And who is the master of the fear of death but, but, but the devil? And yet, and yet now Jesus, 
Now that Satan has been defeated by Jesus, he no longer has us in his chains. The, the poisonous stinger that was in our plunge inside of us, he's pulled the stinger. The death has been defanged. Uh, we approach death with confidence and peace. Death, which was our greatest foe, has become, has become our friend. I was talking to a, to a friend the other day, and he, he said this to me. He said, Brad, do you, you know what I've, what I've done? I've looked up in the actuarial tables, um, or I've used this algorithm to compute the most likely time that I, I'm going to die. I know the exact day <laughs> on the calendar. You, you, just, you put your age in, you put a few other... I mean, they have death calculators online. I've put my, I've done it. I know exactly the, the most probabilistic day that I'm going to die. And you know what I've done? I've, I've created a countdown timer. <laughs> and I've put that countdown timer on my laptop. He, he took the digital clock and he put it on his laptop so that he would see it every day. And you know that the rest of the world who would hear that, would think it's terribly morbid. But do you know what that feels like to me? It's the happiest, the most happy, wonderful, liberating, explosive thought that, that captivates my life. I put a countdown timer on my laptop because, because, because the clock is ticking to the beginning and not the end. 